Many of you are aware that for the last few weeks, we've been working through a series through the book of Jonah. This is the final week in that series. It came and went very quickly. Um, it was more so a mini-series, you might say. And so if, if you missed a week in this series, uh, I would encourage you to go online to our website and go back and, and listen to uh, the uploaded sermon podcast to catch yourself up, um, especially when we get into uh, these brief series like these, um, it's just crucial to, to not miss a massive chunk of the storyline. And so if you miss one week, you miss 25% of this story, essentially. So um, go check that out. But um, this morning, I will give you a brief recap, which will lack many of those nuggets of truth if you do go online and check things out. Um, in the beginning, we see Jonah um, called by the Lord uh, to go on a mission. And uh, many of us would love that if that were uh, what God did with us, right? Audibly, God said, here's where I want you to go for my glory and, and your joy is at stake in this. We would be excited to know that God had great purpose to our lives. We all wanna know why God designed us, why God brought us into this world. What is his purpose for our lives? He makes that very clear to Jonah in chapter one, verse one of this book of the Bible. Jonah, I have a calling on your life. I want you to go east to Nineveh, and I want you to declare a message of repentance to the barbaric Ninevites. And Jonah does what any good prophet would do, right? God says, go east. He goes west. He heads to a port um, called Joppa and gets on a boat heading to South Spain, um, what we would know as South Spain today. While he's on the boat, God hurls a hurricane at Jonah to get him back. God loves him that much. Jonah is, is in a real wrestling match uh, for his soul, um, for his heart uh, at, at this point in the story. The reason, and, and we'll see this even this morning, that Jonah refuses to go east is not because he's fearful of the Ninevites. It's not because he doesn't believe God can do a great work in this city. Rather, it's because Jonah is a racist, prejudiced bigot who doesn't want to see his enemies saved. He doesn't want to see God redeem his enemies. And so he's on the high seas uh, with a bunch of pagan sailors. God hurls this hurricane at him. Uh, the, the boys on, uh, on the boat try to row their way out of danger, uh, trying to save themselves. They're crying out to a plethora of gods. That They finally see that uh, pluralism, calling out to any and every god doesn't work. They see that moralism, trying to row their way uh, in their own strength to their own salvation doesn't work. And so finally, they realize that Jonah is the problem. Um, they, by Jonah's request, tossed him overboard. Uh, Jonah's on a suicide mission. He would rather die than carry out God's calling on his life. In chapter two, you see him slowly plummeting to the bottom of the ocean in this kind of slow motion movie scene, the indie bands playing in the background. We're all with Jonah, contemplatively contemplatively thinking about our lives in this moment. Um, Jonah expresses great gratitude as he realizes that he's far more sinful than he ever imagined, and yet God is far more loving than he ever dared to hope. Uh, and so in the midst of that, he has a, a moment, a God moment in the belly of the fish. And as we moved into chapter three last week, we see Jonah spit back onto dry land. God's calling on his life doesn't change. It's not like uh, God says, okay, Jonah, uh, you're with me now, so go back to your comfort zone in Jerusalem. But rather he says, the calling is the same. I want you to go east. I want you to go to Nineveh. I have a message for the barbaric Ninevites that I want you to declare. And so Jonah goes, and in a moment of revival, he declares eight words, five words in the original Hebrew, and the entire city repents, which, which is a, a good indicator for us that we don't have to be perfect missionaries for God to work. 
Uh, we don't have to master the gospel. We just have to be a people who are being mastered by the gospel. And, and in Jonah's life, he, he's not there yet, right? He's still a work of sanctification, and God still works through him as an instrument of redemption so that we see everyone from the peasants in, in the empire of Nineveh all the way up to the king repenting as we close chapter 3. And this morning, as we pick up, we'll see Jonah's response. We get a one-on-one encounter between Jonah and God out on the peripheral edges of the city of Nineveh as Jonah's looking in on the city to see what will become of it. And I think this is a fascinating ending to this particular book of the Bible. So uh, if you will, if you have a Bible, you can open up to chapter four of Jonah. If you don't own a Bible, there should be one under one of the seats in front of you nearby. You can grab one of those Bibles, flip open to this morning's passage. The book of Jonah is really short, so you may want to use the table of contents, otherwise you may be digging through the entirety of this message, possibly. Um, Let me pray, and we'll jump in, and we'll get to work. God, thank you so much for this book of the Bible. Um, I'm, in some sense, grieving a little bit that we don't get to open it again next week, that there's not a chapter five, and yet, as we'll see, this is a perfect ending to this book. Um, that you've given us uh, for the sake of, of our own joy and for your glory. So, um, God, would you work in us uh, this morning? Would you um, open our hearts? Would you lay them bare on your spiritual operating table this morning? Um, would you expose cancerous sin in our hearts? And um, as a result, uh, would you help us to walk away with the healing balm of the gospel applied to our hearts um, so that as you do work in us, you can then work through us for the sake of your glory as we go out and point more people to Jesus. We ask these things uh, of you, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, so we pick up the story in verse 1 of chapter 4. The people of Nineveh have repented. Across the boards, a mass revival has broken out in the city of Nineveh, and we see this in response. Verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That again, for those who thought that Jonah was afraid to go to Nineveh because he thought the Ninevites were gonna bury him into the, in, in the sand up to his neck, that's not why he refused to go. For those who think that Jonah was uh, concerned that God couldn't uh, break out a mass revival across the city of Nineveh, that's not the case. That again, it's because Jonah was a self-righteous, racist bigot who knew that God would save the very people that he hated. This statement in verse two, um, a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. You may may have heard this phrase before. This is a popular phrase um, in Christendom. Uh, This phrase actually originates from uh, the book of Exodus, chapter 34, verse six, where God reveals himself to Moses on Mount Sinai. And we're told according to Exodus 34, six, that the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, Quote, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The the words that make up this phrase, let me just run through them very briefly. The word gracious means giving you what you don't deserve. All right, think about that for a minute for you, if you're a Christian in this room, that you've been given what you don't deserve by a gracious God. You've been given salvation. You've been given hope. 
Ultimately, you've been given God himself, that he's restored you to himself in a right relationship. This word merciful means not giving you what you do deserve. That as a Christian, we know that we deserve the wrath of God. We deserve condemnation for our sins. We deserve hell. And yet, God has not given us what we do deserve, but rather has given us what we don't deserve. The word slow to anger means having a long fuse. It means being unbelievably patient with us. Do you you know God in that way? Do you see that he's unbelievably patient with you? And then lastly, abounding in steadfast love means a loyal love, a committed love, a covenant love that can't be broken. When you look at, at those words, those phrases up on the screen, do you view God that way? Where, where, do, you, where do you see maybe some, some misfires taking place as it pertains to your understanding of the character of God? And, and I'm not just talking at, at a cosmic level, I'm talking at a very personal level for you. Do you see God as, as unbelievably gracious toward you personally? Again, it's not that language of for God so loved the world so much as it's Jesus loves me, this I know. Is that, does that connect for you? Do you see the mercy of God in your life? Do you see the patience of God in your life? Do you see um, the loyal covenant love of God towards you in your life? Jonah knows theologically who God is. And in response, he says, I, I knew it. I knew you were gonna do this. Jonah's fine with being an object of mercy. The problem is he just doesn't want to be an agent of mercy. How often are we like Jonah, if we're honest? I mean, I'm a lot like Jonah when I think through that particular lens. Happy to receive God's mercy freely, but with withholding it from others selfishly. Happy to experience God's grace for myself, but yet treating others harshly in the wake of that somehow. The reality is that to be merciful toward others is evidence that the mercy of God um, is real in your life, that you've experienced it yourself, that to be gracious toward others is evidence that you've experienced the grace of God for yourself. D.A. Carson says it this way. He says, it is sometimes said that an alcoholic who won't admit he's an alcoholic hates all other alcoholics. Similarly, it is generally true that the sinner who won't face up to his sin hates all other sinners. But the person who has recognized his own helplessness and wretchedness is grateful for whatever mercy is shown him. And he learns to be merciful toward others. That, that there's something that flows forth horizontally from, from the vertical reality that we experience between us and God. Jonah's angry. He's not happy that God's mercy is being extended to his enemies. And I think this is critical here, that we notice that um, as it pertains to our relationship with God, it's progressive. That sanctification, Christian growth, being shaped, as James said, from a a formless void into um, something purposeful that God is doing with us as his image bearers, carving us, shaping us, as Romans 8, into the image of Jesus, that it is a progressive work, and sometimes it is a very slow progressive work. If it were me, I would, I would much rather, the way Christianity works, is that Jonah's one defining moment happened in chapter two, and everything was nice, neat, and clean from that point on. And isn't that how a lot of Christendom operates? Man, I prayed a prayer when I was 14 or fill in the blank with whatever age when I, you know, when I walked an aisle, I went to a camp, whatever it was, and that was my moment. But if you begin to ask, what have the moments looked like since then where God has been at work in exposing sin and pointing to the beauty of the cross in your life, 
Many people fail to be able to respond to a question like that. And it's because they're trying to make Christianity a little too nice and neat and clean, and it's just not, which is why when you get to chapter four, Jonas had his moment of declaration in the belly of the fish that God is who he says he is, and Jonah is in deep need of a savior to redeem him. And yet we get to chapter four, and you're gonna see this father-son struggling, uh, tense conversation taking place between Jonah and God because there's still residual hostility toward the gospel in Jonah's heart. And the same is true for many of us. Um, I, I relate very much to Jonah. If you look at verse three, it says, therefore now, O Lord, Jonah says, please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live. A little melodramatic, don't you think? But have any of you guys ever been there? You go through something and, and you may not say it verbally, but your thought is just take me now, God. I would rather just be gone than to deal with, with this thing that I'm dealing with right now. now I deal with that a lot. I, somehow I do a good job of coming across as fairly cool, calm, and collective, a very mellow um, type of, of guy, but, but I become a melodramatic, you can ask my wife, a melodramatic drama queen when things do not go my way, just like Jonah. All of a sudden, I, I, t- I turn into a walking, ver- walking version of the book of Ecclesiastes. Like, all is vanity. All is meaningless. And Brooks is like, no, the glass isn't always half empty, Jamie. You need to see, you know, uh, the bigger picture than what you're able to see with your, your tiny angle on things right now as you're in the midst of this moment of turmoil in your own soul uh, that just might be, uh, not be what you think it is. We, we all have a breaking point. Jonah has found his. What's yours? What does that look like for you when you just declare, all is vanity, God take me now, I don't even want to live anymore in the midst of this. Jonah responds in the midst of his breaking point, and, and I, I love this. I love how God interacts with Jonah in chapter four, because for the remainder of this particular chapter, this story, um, God's going to sit down with Jonah, and it's going to be a bit of a father-son lesson that's going to take place. Look at verse four, and the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry, Jonah? Notice here that God's not some angry curmudgeon in the sky. He's not waiting to smite Jonah. He's not sitting back with an arsenal of lightning bolts just ready to hurl them at Jonah the moment he messes up. Like a dad with his kid, God asked Jonah, are you in a good place, son? Is it good for you to be this worked up about this particular situation that's unfolding in my providence? God could have easily wiped Jonah off the face of the planet, could he not? He could have done that back in chapter two. Or he could have approached the conversation the way he did with Job. All right, Jonah, it's time to man up. Put on your big boy pants. We're gonna have an adult conversation here. And he would have been right to do so if he chose to approach it that way. But instead, God tenderly handles Jonah in this moment like a dad who deeply loves his child. Let me ask you, this, this morning, because I know this is a struggle for many of us. Uh, my dad checked out when I was four. Um, at, at one point along the way, when I uh, reached adulthood, said his obligation to me was done, which meant that I was nothing more than a money obligation at one point um, as it pertained to him. It was really hard for me to connect with the idea that God could be a loving father in the midst of what I experienced in real life. Um, let me ask you this. Can you hear God saying these words to you? Are you in a good place? Is what's going through your mind and heart these days healthy? I love you. 
So let's talk, me and you, father and child. Can you hear God speaking to you that way? Do you perceive God to be a loving father who, who you can um, metaphorically crawl up into his lap in, in moments where you're broken, in moments where you're experiencing great joy and want to rejoice with your maker, with your redeemer? Do you, do you have that kind of relationship? For some of us, I think this morning, that would be the, the sermon application that you just need to, for lack of better terms, crawl up into dad's lap and just spend some time with God and see him in that way. God comes to Jonah uh, with this particular event as a father speaks to a son, and, and Jonah does what most kids do um, when their parents try to lovingly reason with them and they're not thinking uh, with, with any sort of reason in their minds. He marches out of the room throwing a proverbial temper tantrum Right? You see that in verse five. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. The, the word booth, uh, which is a tent, uh, is similar to what the Israelites used uh, when they wandered in the wilderness. So we're meant to see that, that Jonah is on the outside now. He's in the wilderness. He's having a wilderness moment as it pertains to his relationship with God and his understanding of the way God has designed the world to work and God's heart in redeeming sinners. And so we're told that he sat under this booth, under this tent in the shade, verse five, till he should see what would become of the city. He, he's still hoping. We saw at the end of chapter three that God intends to relent from the disaster that he had planned for the city of Nineveh. Yet Jonah's still hoping deep down that this city and all of its inhabitants get wiped out when the 40 days is up. Like 4th of July, he set up his lawn chair and he's just waiting for everything to explode. He's waiting to get a front seat to, to judgment day in the life of his enemies. Let me ask you a question, uh, and, and this is one that hurt me this week. Um, it's a very simple question, three simple words. Who's your Nineveh? Who's your Nineveh? Who, who are you setting up a proverbial lawn chair for? Who does your heart need to be softened for? Who would you, oh, this is even worse, who would you be content with God not saving? Or as it pertains to the family of God, who is it that drives you crazy that they're a part of the family of God because you now have to live your life in the midst of them as a Christian? I mean, what if God had a sick sense of humor and rather than mansions, we got duplexes? Who would you be distraught over the fact that you are now sharing a duplex for eternity with? God does what any good dad would do when his kid won't reason with him in a conversation. He, he resorts to an object lesson, and this is just as much for us as it is for Jonah this morning. Verse six, now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. This is the first time that Jonah's glad in this story. If you go back and, and you look through the first three chapters, in chapter two, we see gratitude in the midst of God's redemption in Jonah's life, but we don't see exceeding gladness. This is the first time we see that, and when we see it, it's over a thing. It's over a plant. We're told in verse one of chapter four, Jonah is exceedingly displeased. You have that same word, exceedingly, over a revival taking place in Nineveh. He doesn't want that, yet he's exceedingly glad over a plant growing up in the midst of the desert. So the question begs to be answered, is Jonah all of a sudden a botanist? Is he just stoked about plants all of a sudden? Like if there was a plant channel on TV, that's the one he's, he's honing in on now? 
No, the, the, the plant is, is a means to Jonah's salvation in the midst of the scorching desert. What we're meant to see is the contrast between his anger over the salvation of others who aren't like him and yet the exceeding joy over his own salvation. That Jonah's prejudiced heart is being exposed in the heat of the Assyrian desert here at this point in the story. That he's essentially saying, God, thank you for saving me. Feel free to save others who are like me and send the rest to hell. I don't know how convicting that is for you, but it's super convicting for me because I like to hang out with people who are like me. I like to be around people who share the same common interests, the same hobbies as me, who are at the same place in life oftentimes. And and without saying it, I indirectly like to allow others to fend for themselves. Where are you in that? What does that look like for you? Do you you embrace the diversity of the church? Are, Are you excited to see people who are not like you, who are very different from you, who might not um, live their lives the same way that you do, who might parent differently than you, um, who might uh, have different hobbies than you, who might have different uh, residual sin issues in their lives in the wake of being redeemed than you? Do, you. do you rejoice at them being brought into the family of God? Jonah finally finds some joy, but it's not going to last for long because this is an object lesson. And so we're told in verse 7, but when dawn came up the next day, this is hilarious. God appointed a worm because he can appoint giant creatures of the deep and worms and everything in between. God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked God that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. I don't think Jonah's being quite as melodramatic At this point in the story, um, he might actually be right here. He's in the scorching Assyrian desert in the heat of the day. God's God's given him shade for for a day. He gets to experience the taste of, uh, of shade for a day. And then God robs him of it the very next day. And Jonah says to God, you took, you took my plant. You took the one thing that actually brought me joy over the course of four chapters of my life unfolding in all of these crazy ways, the one thing that actually brings me joy. Jonah's basically saying, if I can't have that plant, I would rather die. Again, God's revealing the condition of Jonah's heart. He does this with us, does he not? Constantly. What's your plant? God loves to strip us of our idols to reveal the condition of our hearts. How would you fill in the blank with this sentence? If I can't have blank, I would rather die. Now, we probably wouldn't say that in a very melodramatic fashion, but deep in the recesses of our minds and our hearts, there are things that if we were to lay them on the table and God was to take them from us and say, you'll never have that, that we'd rather die in the end. Or another way we could say it, because maybe we already have some of those things in our possession. I'd rather die than have blank stripped away from me. Questions like that can give you a a really good diagnostic read on your heart. Again, remember, Jonah chapter four is God putting on uh, our hearts on the spiritually surgical table, you might say. Is God first in your heart, or is it some plant? Verse nine, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Again, God is coming to Jonah as a father, 
a loving father in this conversation and saying, is the plant really something to despair of life itself over, Jonah? And Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Now, now we go back into temper tantrum, uh, right? He's, he's back in the, the realm of adolescence. And, and here's where the object lesson comes full circle. In verse 10, we're told, the Lord said, you pity the plant, Jonah, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. In other words, Jonah's beating his chest like a, a religious person, like a moralist, you know, as if he did something to earn the shade of that plant, as if he grew that plant himself. God makes very clear, we see a plant growing quickly, and, and that's not meant to make us skeptical of the story itself. It's meant to make us see that Jonah did nothing to contribute to that, that it's all the grace of God. God's saying, you didn't make it grow, I didn't owe you that shade even for the one single day that you experienced it. That was my grace extended to you. How many of us desperately need to hear that this morning? That you can't put God in your debt. It can't be done. Jonah's a bit of a spiritual scorekeeper, and and many of us, we, we battle with this in our hearts, do we not? How do you know? Just ask yourself, this would be one way to um, diagnose yourself. Uh, If you've ever waved your fist in the face of the Almighty when something didn't go well for you. I think I've told this story to some of you at least before. Um, One of my buddies, uh, he also is a pastor now. Um, When he and his wife had their first kid, uh, they, they were the... Uh, the poster children uh, for how you approach your pregnancy. For nine months straight, every single day, they prayed for their child, and they prayed two things. God, would you uh, bring this child into the world healthy, and would you bring this child into the world happy? And you can probably imagine what happened. Baby's born, colic, ear infections, colds, just the gamut, and, and it was layered, so there was never any reprieve from it all, and, and several months into the birth of, of their first son, uh, my buddy, as he tells me the story, uh, he said, I, I was in my son's nursery, and I should be, you know, whispering at most to try to get the kid back to sleep. He said, I just had a, a breakdown moment where I literally put my fist in the air and yelled at God, you owe me. I prayed for this child for nine straight months, day after day after day. Come on, are you kidding me? How many other people in the world don't do that with their pregnancies and their kids are happier and healthier than my kid? The, the thing that God did in his heart that day, that night, was to break him in some sense, to some degree of his moralistic heart that assumed uh, entitlement as a child of God. This, this idea that you can put God in your debt is what causes a lot of people to abandon Christianity, does it not? You, you've met people who say, man, I loved God with all of my heart and then blank happened to me and I don't want anything to do with God anymore. It's this idea of entitlement. That the, the truth is that God owes us nothing. Nothing. He owed Jonah nothing. He didn't owe Jonah shade for a day much less multiple days, that every good thing that we have, just like Jonah, is God's grace to us, including the next breath that you and I are gonna breathe two seconds from now. God doesn't owe us that. That's a gift of God's grace. 
the craziness of the gospel is that God owes us nothing but he gave us his son to live the life that we couldn't live, to die the death that we deserve to die for our sin, to conquer sin and death through his resurrection, things that we could never conquer on our own. And that's not because we did something that caused God to go, I need you on my team. It wasn't like an elementary school PE class where God looked down and said, man, you kick really well. I need to send Jesus to die for you so you can be on my eternal team. That's not how the gospel works. God looked down across the landscape of humanity and saw nothing but sinners and said, I love you anyway by my grace. And I'm gonna do something to restore you to myself. As we close this story, This is about the most absurd ending to a book that you could ever imagine. Look at verse 10. And the Lord said to Jonah, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Um, I don't know about you. I'm I'm not a huge fan of unresolved storylines. Um, the movie The Breakup is one of the dumbest movies that I've ever seen in my life because at the end of it, uh, Vince Vaughn's character, Jennifer Aniston's character, they just have this awkward passing. They they don't reconcile. The whole time I'm sitting there going, just get a cup of coffee. Like, that's all you gotta do. 30 minutes over a cup of coffee, you might can iron out some of your issues. And they just kind of go off, you know, to opposite ends of uh, the the landscape of of what we see in the camera. And, And you don't know what happens. Right? There are a lot of movies like that. For some of you uh, who like the creepier movies, Prisoners is another one that ends like that. You're just wondering, like, is the guy under the dirt going to get found by, uh, by the guy 10 feet away who doesn't even know that he's buried right there you know, in, in the ground? Um, movies like that uh, tend to, to just kind of set us off a little bit. Um, if, you're, if you're sick, you like movies like that. But most of us like happy endings. We like the, and they lived happily ever after. Right? Now, I don't know about you, if I was writing this story, it'd be done with chapter three. Revival breaks out, the whole city all the way up to the king on his throne, repent. That's a great way to end a story, is it not? And they all lived happily ever after in Nineveh. But God decides to go with a different ending, and it's more brilliant than the ending that you or I would have written. Here's why. God says, you pity the death of a plant. You grieve the death of a plant. Should I not pity, should I not grieve the death of more than 120,000 human beings? They're spiritually blind. They don't know their right hand from their left. They can't see straight spiritually. Do you want me not to care, Jonah? You didn't create that plant, but I did create every one of those 120,000 people in my image. And the book ends with a question rather than a conclusion. It's very similar to the ending of the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. I would encourage you to go read that this week. That uh, if you're not familiar with the story, you have two sons, uh, and the younger son goes to his father and asks for the inheritance early, uh, which is just a rude thing to do, right? I'm going to treat you like you're dead already. Will you give me my money, Dad? And, And he goes and basically runs off to Vegas the Vegas of his day, squanders all of his inheritance in reckless, sinful living, finds himself um, with a job feeding pigs at one point, and he's so hungry, he's so destitute that he starts eating their food, the food of the pigs, and he realizes, you know, my dad may not welcome me back as a son, but he'll at least bring me back as a servant on his property so that I don't have to eat pig food. 
And so he goes back and, and he's got his head hung in shame. He's trying to think through, how am, I gonna, how am I gonna word this? How am I gonna lay this out for my father so that he'll at least let me be a servant if nothing else? And we see this great picture of, of the grace of God, do we not? As the, as the younger brother gets closer to home and he doesn't even have to make his way up and begin his speech to dad. Dad comes running in his direction, embraces him, says, you were my son who was lost, but now you're found. And, and he, uh, his son is in rags at this point. His dad says, go grab the best of robes for my son. Um, Go grab the fattened calf. We're going to kill it. We're going to throw a party tonight. This is going to be awesome. My son is back. He's he's under my roof again. We're a family. Meanwhile, you, you don't you don't really think too much, um, especially in the Bible Belt. We tell that story to try to bring all the wayward sinners back in, you know, into the fold, um, and that's crucial. That is a critical part of it, but we don't think about the older brother as much, and yet um, the, the older brother all the while has been right at, at dad's side doing everything dad asked of him. Dad, I'm checking all the boxes that say do this, and I'm, I'm staying away from, from all the don'ts. I'm doing everything you're asking of me, are you kidding me right now? You just killed a fattened calf for him? When have you ever done that for me? I've done everything you've asked of me, which is another way of saying, you owe me, dad. I've put you in my debt, dad. And as the party is taking place inside the house, the story, the parable of the the prodigal ends with the older brother still outside. We don't know what happens to him. We don't know if he goes in and celebrates and experiences, experiences the joy of redemption for himself or if he just remains at the peripheral edges looking in with anger in his heart. Now, Jesus tells that parable in the context of a bunch of sinners and tax collectors all sitting at his feet, younger brothers, you could say, And the Pharisees and scribes, all on the outer peripheral edges of the conversation, looking in, wondering, why is Jesus hanging out with those guys? It's a very similar thing that we see in Jonah chapter 4, as Jonah is outside the city, and we wonder, is is he going to enter into the party that's taking place in the city of Nineveh, or is he going to stand outside with anger in his heart and and fail to experience redemption for himself? Don Hillis, in his commentary on the book of Jonah, says this. He says, God's greatest obstacle to the conversion of Nineveh was not to be found in Nineveh. It was not to be found in the jails, the gambling dens, the saloons, or even the houses of ill fame in that city. God's greatest obstacle in turning Nineveh to repentance was not found in the graft-ridden police force, the corrupt politics, the juvenile delinquency, or even the idolatrous temples of the city. God's greatest obstacle was found in the pious, prejudiced heart of Jonah. He goes on to say, It is not always sin in the hearts of sinners that keeps men from turning to God. It is sometimes sin in the hearts of saints. As we close this story, we're left with the same question that Jonah's left with, which is this. People need Jesus. What are you going to do about it? What am I going to do about it? That God has given us this great mission of reaching people in our community and beyond what are, how are we going to respond? What is that going to look like? Are we going to stand on the peripheral edges of God's mission for us, or are we going to engage it? The, the question for us becomes, shouldn't God pity people in our neighborhoods? 
in our workplaces, in our families who are spiritually helpless, who are spiritually blind? And the answer is a resounding yes, right? Going back to verse two of chapter four, that we know the heart of God. He's a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But if that's true, if it's true that God um, pities people in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our families who are far from him, then, then that means something for us. Here's what I think it means. It means that the extent to which our hearts are moved for people to meet Jesus is the extent to which our hearts are in sync with the heart of God. God loves to save sinners. The question is, how in sync are we with God's heart as it pertains to the mission that he's calling us to and pointing more people to Jesus? G. Campbell Morgan, in his commentary, says this. He says, the whole lesson of the book of Jonah is that of the sin of exclusiveness, the sin of imagining that if we have received light, it is for ourselves alone. That Jonah became depressed and angry at the sight of many repenting sinners. Jesus rejoiced over the sight of one sinner brought to repentance. Again, we're meant to look to Jesus. He's the greater Jonah. Brian Estelle says this in his commentary, the compassion of God revealed so powerfully at the end of Jonah is quintessentially manifested on the hill of Golgotha that if you wanna begin to grasp the mercy of God, if you want to begin to grasp the grace of God, if you want to begin to grasp the long fuse of God, look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ that it's there that you see the height of God's love, the depth of God's love, the breadth of God's love, the length of God's love that surpasses all knowledge, that we're called to look to Jesus as we finish this story because Jonah leaves us hopeless. Jonah's in desperate need of a savior just like you and me as we close this story. As we prepare to take communion this morning, Maybe some of us need to put our anger aside. Maybe that's what repentance looks like for us. Maybe some of us need to repent of our lack of mercy and grace toward others when we received mercy and grace from from God so bountifully. Maybe some of us need to repent of idols, good things that we make into God things that we say, I'd rather die than not have that or have that stripped from me. Maybe some of us need to repent of the religious mindset that says God owes me that I can put God in my debt by doing enough Christian things. Maybe some of us need to to simply climb up into dad's lap this morning and talk with him. Maybe it's been a while since you've engaged God as a loving father, as you've seen him, viewed him that way. Maybe this morning is where you crawl up into his lap and just let it loose and, and let him know about everything that's been going on in your life that he already knows about, but that he's been waiting for you to tell him about for a long time. And all of us in this room need to look to Jesus. That Jonah, if you go back to the parable of the prodigal, Jonah is both the wayward younger brother and the religious elder brother in this story, is he not? That he's the wayward younger brother who ran west when God said go east, and he's the religious elder brother who wallowed in his own pride and self-righteousness. And we even see him there as the story comes to a close. And the truth is this, so are we. You and I, we're both the wayward younger brother and the religious elder brother in that parable. We run from God at times and we wave our fists in his face at times. We do both. Yet Jesus, according to the author of Hebrews, is our perfect elder brother. He wasn't wayward, he was sinless. He lived the life that you and I could never live. He didn't look down his nose at sinners, he died for them, including you and me. 
If you're a Christian this morning, remember that. Remember that as you take the bread and dip it in the cup, symbolic of Jesus' broken body and shed blood for you. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.